Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we try to make keeping up with the literature easy. It's like having the latest research spoon-fed to you through your earbuds. Now let's take a quick look ahead at all that research that we're going to be covering this week. First off, a peep at PEEP in non-ARDS patients. After that, perfecting the dose of ketamine for pain control. Then, POCUS for focus exams in PE patients. Following that, we have the prevalence of PE in COPD patients. And then finally, a deep dive on Ludwig's angina. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the gorgeous Aaron Lacey, Will Croft, Vivian Lay, Bo Stubblefield, and Clay Smith. Now then, the first article for this week, which was titled The Effect of Low versus High and Positive Expiratory Pressure Strategy on Ventilator-Free Days in ICU Patients Without ARDS, a Randomized Controlled Trial out of the JAMA. Now, invasive mechanical ventilation sounds like kind of a violent process, at least that's how I think of it. And it kind of should, because it isn't exactly benign. And so we need to be careful about all the things that we do to patients, and that really includes ventilating patients. Now then, the ARDSNET protocol has done a lot to help us with this, giving us the lung protective ventilation strategies that we've come to know and love. Taking low volumes makes sense, but ARDSNET also calls for high PEEP. So we tend to give all patients, eh, you know, pretty high PEEP. Is that really necessary in patients without ARDS? This was an unblinded multicenter RCT done in the Netherlands, which included 980 patients who were anticipated to need mechanical ventilation for more than 24 hours and did not have ARDS. These groups were randomized to either receive low PEEP for 0 to 5 centimeters of water or high PEEP at 8 centimeters of water. For the primary outcome of ventilator-free days by day 28, the use of low PEEP was non-inferior to the use of high PEEP, so they had no more ventilator days. There was also no difference in the rates of severe hypoxemia, the need for rescue of ventilator strategies, or mortality. So it kind of makes intuitive sense not to put patients on more PEEP if they don't need it. And more compliant lungs are of course going to need less pressure, so this all makes sense to me. In a spoonful, using low PEEP settings of 5 or less in patients without ARDS was non-inferior to using high PEEP in terms of ventilator-free days. And after that, we have the second article, which was titled, A Non-Randomized, Non-Inferiority Controlled Trial of Two Doses of Intravenous Subdissociative Ketamine for Analgesia in the Emergency Department out of the Academic Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now then, we're kind of always on the lookout now for opioid-free methods to control pain. And let's be honest, ketamine seems to work for just about everything. Ketamine's already been shown to be non-inferior to opioid-based pain control methods in multiple studies. Ketamine isn't perfect, though. It, of course, has adverse effects just like everything else. We know that these problems are proportional to the dose of ketamine that you're going to be getting. So what we need is the sweet spot. Not too little, not too much, just the right amount of ketamine to dull pain without causing side effects. To help us find that sweet spot, this study recruited patients 15 to 59 years old with acute, moderate to severe pain and then prospectively randomized them to get either 0.15 milligrams per kg or 0.3 milligrams per kg of IV ketamine over 15 minutes. Both the patients and the providers were blinded to the doses, and the primary outcome was pain on a 0-10 to 10 point scale at 30 minutes. 
Now, pain relief was non-inferior in the low-dose group compared to the high-dose group. At 15 minutes, the high-dose group had greater decreases in pain, but it also had more side effects. At 30 minutes, these things eh, kind of tended to equal out. Generally, most patients said that they would actually like to receive this same medication again if there was a similar indication. I like that measure, you know, seeing what patients prefer, but I'm never quite sure how to use it. Now, if you remember from last week, we actually looked at Ketorolac, which does also seem to have some dose effect ceiling. Maybe ketamine could be similar. Again, though, people rarely want pain controlled for just 30 minutes. I like to see time points that are farther out than that. Now, in a spoonful, using sub-dissociative doses of ketamine for pain control, giving a lower dose of 0.15 megs per keg appears to be equally effective as 0.3 megs per keg at 30 minutes for acute, moderate to severe pain with possibly less side effects. And after two comes Article 3. Increased sensitivity of a focused cardiac ultrasound for pulmonary embolism in the emergency department patients with abnormal vital signs. Out of the Academic Journal of Emergency Medicine, now, we've actually already covered this article in the past, but now we have a fresh take on it from one of our POCUS gurus, and it's an important topic, so it bears repeating. So, with a suspicion for significant PE, ideally you would get a CTPA. That's not always going to be possible immediately, though. There are a bunch of things that could hold you back from that. You might not have the resources to get that done. It might not be feasible to get an unstable patient there to have it done. They could be morbidly obese. They could have an allergy to contrast. There are a lot of things that can keep you from a scanner in short order. But what's easy to do and, of course, can be done at the bedside is POCUS. Or in this case, it's going to be FOCUS since this is going to be a focused cardiac ultrasound. Now then, this trial was a multi-center prospective observational cohort study looking into focus exams for PEs. The investigators posited that a PE large enough to change vital signs should probably be affecting the right heart. And by extension, those effects should of course be visible on ultrasound. The ultrasound assessment that was done in this study looked at RV dilation, McConnell sign, septal flaring or the D sign, tricuspid regurgitation, and tricuspid annular plane systolic excursion less than 20 millimeters. The conclusions were compared to the gold standard of getting a CTPA. Now, this study enrolled 137 patients with suspected PEs and heart rates over 100 or a systolic blood pressure less than 90. The focus exam was 92% sensitive for PEs overall, and in the subgroup analysis of patients with heart rates over 110, which was more than 70% of the cohort, so still decently powered, they actually found a sensitivity of 100%. The 95% confidence interval on that sensitivity, however, was 88 to 100%, so no matter what, it's still pretty high. Now, that tricuspid annular plane systolic excursion that I mentioned is actually the most sensitive sign by focus that was measured in this study. And unfortunately, none of the different signs that were looked at were 100% sensitive, so the full exam is actually going to be necessary in order for your exam to be compatible and comparable with this data. And from this study, only one positive exam being abnormal was counted as a positive test for a pulmonary embolism. This sacrifices specificity, but what we're really looking for here is kind of a rule-out test. In a spoonful, in a patient with suspicion for PE who had abnormal vital signs, a focused cardiac ultrasound was found to be highly sensitive at 92% for detecting a pulmonary embolism, even more so if the heart rate was over 110, where that sensitivity reached 100%. 
After that, we had the fourth article, which is titled Prevalence of Pulmonary Embolism Among Patients with COPD Hospitalized with Acute Worsening Respiratory Symptoms Out of the JAMA. It's generally good advice to consider two things whenever you see any patient. First, what's the most common thing that causes this problem? And then second, what could kill this patient? There are a lot of COPD patients that are going to come to your hospital. And let's be honest, most of the time they're going to be short of breath since, well, they're coming to the hospital. Now, in any shortness of breath patient, there has to be that tiny little voice that should be saying to you, could this be a PE? Prior studies have already shown a high prevalence of PEs in patients with COPD presenting with shortness of breath. Ranges span from anywhere from 16 to 29% in past studies. That's a heck of a lot if you ask me. Furthermore, mortality and length of admission are also increased in patients with acute COPD exacerbations, which are accompanied by PEs. Big surprise. And so it's a relevant topic for us to be talking about. To get to the bottom of this, these authors did a multi-center cross-sectional study of 740 patients with confirmed COPD who were admitted to the hospital with worsening respiratory symptoms. There was also a prospective follow-up at three months for all of these patients. In this cohort, 5.9% of patients had confirmed pulmonary embolisms at 48 hours after admission, and another 0.7% of these patients had a PE at three-month follow-up. The mortality in these patients was 6.8%, which was worse if these PEs were diagnosed in the first two days of admission. So this data actually shows a lower prevalence than has been previously reported, but that's still a huge amount of patients with PEs. Be sure to consider this diagnosis in all of these patients and use the tools that are available to us to rule in or rule out a PE. Now, as a quick aside, a fun thing that the authors were able to do was compare physician gestalt to PE prevalence rates. If the patient was deemed to be likely of having a PE by gestalt, then the prevalence of PEs in those patients actually rose to 10%. If they were deemed to be low probability by gestalt, then the prevalence fell to 3%. Now that's not crazy, that essentially means that there's a positive likelihood ratio of 2 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.5 by using Gestalt. But it makes a difference. In a spoonful, in COPD exacerbation patients, a total of 6.6% had a PE within 3 months of admission, and most of these were diagnosed within 48 hours of admission. And to end things off, we have the fifth article, which was titled Diagnosis and Management of Ludwig's Angina, an Evidence-Based Review out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. This is a journal feed deep dive into Ludwig's Angina based from this lovely review. Now, Ludwig's Angina is a life-threatening infection of the floor of the mouth that can easily become deadly without proper treatment that's done quickly. This is typically a polymicrobial infection of the submandibular and sublingual spaces, resulting in tongue enlargement and elevation of the hypopharynx. Risk factors for Ludwig's angina are going to include things like recent dental infections, oral piercings, immunosuppression, malnutrition, diabetes mellitus, oral or dental trauma, injection drug use, and chronic alcohol use. The presenting symptoms are all going to be kind of scary, but sort of what you'd expect. Fever, malaise, chills, progressing to trismus, meningismus, drooling, dysphagia, and often a tripoding position. On exam, you might see a symmetric, tense, and indurated submandibular area with possible lingual swelling and elevation of the floor of the mouth. The diagnosis is typically made clinically with the addition of CTs of the neck when in doubt and to access for the extent of disease. 
Pocus can sometimes help assess the airway if you're unsure if this patient is going to be safe to be sent for CT. The treatment, of course, is where you're going to get most of the bang for your buck. You're going to want to do serial exams assessing the airway and hemodynamics. Immediate airway intervention of the patient with significant airway swelling, dyspnea, or rapid progression is going to be vital. This is going to require emergent ENT and anesthesia consults if you have them available. Pre-oxygenate, pre-oxygenate, pre-oxygenate these patients. Awake nasotracheal intubation in a seated position with flexible intubating endoscopes would be ideal. And of course, you're going to want to prep this patient for a surgical cricothyroidotomy as a backup before you even start with the airway. Besides that, antimicrobial treatment is going to be with broad-spectrum antibiotics covering anaerobes, aerobes, and oral flora. Consider using adjunctive steroids and nebulized epinephrine to get the swelling down and open up those airways. Early surgical consultation for consideration of source control, be it ENT or OMF, might be necessary. And finally, you're going to want to admit this patient to an intensive care setting. And a spoonful, that's the spoonful on Ludwig's angina. I hope it helps. So what did we cover this week? Let's do a quick wrap up of everything. First, without ARDS, often your lungs are going to be pretty compliant. So low PEEP or high PEEP in these patients won't change the number of days that they're on the vent. After that, control pain just as well and hopefully cause less pain by way of adverse events by starting low with your ketamine doses. Third, focus exams are highly sensitive for pulmonary embolisms in patients with abnormal vital signs. If the heart rate was above 110, then the sensitivity reached as high as 100%. Fourth, the prevalence of PEs in COPD exacerbation patients was 5.9% in the first 48 hours of admission, and the mortality rate was 68% to go on top of that. And then finally, we did a review of Ludwig's angina. Just be careful of the airway and start antibiotics. Of course, get surgery involved. Now then, you've earned them and we offer them. We have CME credits which are offered through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Links to all the articles summarized can also be found there, and if you haven't already, then you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep on top of the research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.